In this series, we'll be walking through the book of Nehemiah, a man that had a calling from the Lord and responded to that calling with action. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good day. Good day to you, LifePoint. We, uh, this is the last Sunday, by the way, for 8 a.m. services for the next few months. Do we have any 8 a.m.ers who came and tried out 945 just to see how it felt? Anybody? We've got a few. Okay. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. Don't know what you did with your extra hour this morning. I hope it was productive. I hope you slept an hour for me. Uh, we are in Nehemiah chapter 10. And I can tell you that on the surface, Nehemiah 10 does not look like there is much there. So much so that this morning at 6 a.m. I looked and said, I better have something else to preach. So I went through an old folder of sermons because I was like, I just feel God like there's just nothing here. I mean, I've studied it all week. I've looked at what I have set up, but it seems boring. Like if I'm bored with it, then trust me, you'll be bored with it. And so I went, laid down on the couch in my office and just began to pray and say, God, show me what it is you've been, what you actually want me to speak on or inspire me or, or, or take me to the uh, sermon I preached in the past that you're wanting to re-talk about. And the Lord just said, why don't you reread Nehemiah 10 again? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I read it on Monday. You want me to read it again? And uh, I'm kidding. And so I reread Nehemiah 10. And as I reread it, the Lord began to reveal to me exactly what it was he was wanting to say this morning exactly where he was wanting to show us that his word has power uh, no matter which section you read. I do not need to go and extrapolate different verses that help meet my need. In fact, I can read the scriptures and see that God will meet my need in whatever part of the scriptures I'm reading. And so as I reread this and I begin to see it, I think you're going to see this morning, it's pretty cool, uh, how amazing our God is and how uh, relevant our God is. So we're going to jump in Nehemiah 10. We're going to start actually in the last verse in 9 because it uh, sets up 10. So Nehemiah 9, 38 is like this. It's, remember, most all of Nehemiah 9 was a prayer. It was 32 verses of a prayer, longest recorded prayer in Scripture. And it was the people, after every, the foundations of the walls were rebuilt, the gates were hung, the spiritual foundation has been reestablished with the, um, the priests and the Levites and Ezra as the high priest, and they've read the Torah, they've been through all the festivals, and now this long prayer happens where they recommit themselves to the Lord. And if you remember that from last week, the Acts form of prayer, acknowledgement, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication. Then our requests come before the Lord. And so we've come to the end of that, and this is what it said. It said, because of all this... We make a firm agreement in writing, and on that sealed document are inscribed the names of our officials, our Levites, and our priests. And so at the end of this prayer, they, they actually write all this out. They write out everything that they have just prayed. They write out everything that they are going to commit themselves to, and then they're going to sign it and seal it. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. This morning's message is entitled, After the Amen. What do I do after the Amen. What do you do after you say the prayer? You ever been there? In that spot where you've just had maybe just an intense time of prayer with the Lord, or maybe it's just driving and you're crying out to God and saying, God, help. And then it's just sort of like, okay, now what? After the prayer, 
That's Nehemiah 10. The now what? So Nehemiah 10 opens up and it says, Upon the sealed documents are the names of Nehemiah the governor, son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah, and then 82 more names. Now I am positive, I am positive that you all read this this week. Good. Knowing that we read Nehemiah 9 last week, knowing that uh, uh, this week was going to be Nehemiah 10. So I'm just going to skip a bit and get down to verse 27. Maluch, Hiram, and Banah. Not to be confused with the fruit. So then we jump into 28. 28 is going, <laughs> yes, it works out so much better in 945. I said that at 8 a.m. and they looked disappointingly at me. I got one of those. <laughs> okay, 28, verse 28, chapter 10, goes to give us a summary of the covenant. Nehemiah's going to let us know what was this covenant about, what were they signing their names to and putting the seal on, and then we're going to talk about the purpose of the covenant. Do we make covenants with the Lord now? And onward. Verse 28, the rest of the people, so after that list of 84 names, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the people of the land to adhere to the law of God, you see their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, they join with their kin, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. I'm going to do like I usually do and break this up a bit so we understand. When it says they entered into a curse and an oath, do we, do we know what that means? Remember when Abraham made the oath and the covenant with God, or should I say when God made the covenant with Abraham? When they took the animals and they cut them in half and they split them, and then God walked between them, and, this, and it was a customary Jewish thing that you would do that if you made an oath with another human being and you would say, may I be as these dead animals split in half if I break the covenant, right? And so when it says here, when you accept a covenant, Especially when you accept a covenant with the Almighty God, you are taking upon yourself that if I break this, may the curse come upon me, but if I keep it, may the blessing come upon me as well. It's what is so crucial in understanding the covenant that God made with Abraham is not one that said, Abraham, if you break this covenant, you will be destroyed like these animals. He said, if you break this covenant or if I break this covenant, I will pass through the animals and I will pay the price. Even if I keep my end of the covenant, I will pay the price if you break the covenant. And so here we have Nehemiah and the people once again entering into a covenant with God, coming back from the uh, captivity and saying, here is what in the covenant we will commit to the Lord. So we pick up verse uh, 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in merchandise or grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy it from them. The Sabbath on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. The exaction of every debt. So this again is going back to the fact that they are saying, we will re-acknowledge the Sabbath. Something that the Israelite people had forgotten. One of the main reasons they were taken into captivity in the first place was because they did not honor the Sabbath year. They did not honor the year of rest for the land. Remember, you can till it for six years, and on that seventh year, you must 
for go uh, working the land. Which means on that sixth year, you must have enough food for two years worth. Because it's going to take that long until you have another crop. And so what they're doing is they're saying, we will acknowledge this again. We will recognize the Sabbath year. Verse 32. We also lay on ourselves the obligation to charge ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the rows of bread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed festivals, the sacred donations, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We've also cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God by ancestral houses at appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So these last few verses have all been the different offerings that they bring to the Lord. It's crazy because in modern American church culture, we talk about a 10% tithe. We talk about a tenth, and then we say, if you don't do the tenth, just give whatever. And if you don't give whatever, then just think about giving whatever. And if you don't think about giving whatever, then just occasionally have thoughts of someone else giving on your behalf. (laughs) And if you can't do that, then just show up. They had the sin offering, the burnt offering, the uh, Sabbath, the appointed festival, sacred donation, the bread off, the grain offering, and the wood offering. The wood offering was the altar had to be burning constantly, right? The pillar of fire was always kept burning, and so it obviously had to be constantly fed wood. And so they would split up and cast lots for the different tribes to bring in and keep the wood there so that way the uh, pillar of fire at the temple could be continually burning. Verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our soil and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. This is a continuation from what we see in Genesis with Cain and Abel. It is a first fruits giving. It is before the whole crop is here, I will bring the best of what I have before the Lord. We'll talk more about that later. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our livestock, for as it is written in the law, the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks. Again, they're just coming off of reading the law. They're just coming off of reading Deuteronomy and spending those weeks in the scriptures learning and being taught. Verse 37, to bring the first of our dough and our contributions. (laughs) Dough is not money there. Uh, And I lost it. Contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers, and to the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our soil. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our rural towns. And the priests and the descendants of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tithe of the tithes to the house of God. A tithe of the tithes. This is why... At Life Point, this is one of the reasons uh, we as a church take whatever is brought in and then give back out at a base 10%, and then everything above that, which for the last four years, by God's grace, has been over 10%, we give back out to ministries. So somewhere between 12 and 16% over the last four years goes back out to non Life Point related ministries. It's a tithe of the tithe. Okay? For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the storerooms where the vessels of the sanctuary are and where the priests that minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. See, even the singers have a place here. And we will not neglect the house of our God. 
Is that up there this time? There it is. Yes. We will not neglect the house of our God. The house of our God is said nine times, if you were paying attention in what I just read. Nine times. This idea from Nehemiah, this idea from the priest, what is being recorded is the importance of the house of our God. And so as we look this morning at what it is we do after amen, may we understand the primary theme here is that last sentence, that we not neglect the house of God. Times have changed. The house of God is no longer a temple where there is a fire constantly burning. The house of God does not reside on an ark built by hands of man. In fact, we live in a much different age and a much different time, and we have been given much more than what the Israelites were given here in Nehemiah's time. There's this church pastor. It's a great story. Helps illustrate our point here. There's a church pastor, and every time he would pray, how he would close every prayer at the end of a sermon would be, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Yes, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. He'd say it twice. One of the church members became weary of hearing this same insincere request. And so the next time he heard the man pray, in the middle of the sentence, as the pastor prayed, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, the man shouted, Lord, why don't you kill the spider while you're at it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's one thing to offer the Lord a passionate prayer of confession, but what's the point if you know that you're just going to continue to do the very thing you're asking? Now, here's something interesting with that. We all stumble. Victorious Christian life, Alexander White said, is a series of new beginnings. But did you know that in Jude, verse 24, it says that God has the ability to keep us from stumbling? Did you know that? God has the ability to keep us from stumbling. And then Psalm 37, 23 and 24 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hands. So why then, if our God has the ability to keep us from stumbling, do we stumble so much? As I hung out with my children this week and I took them to a birthday party at Legoland Discovery. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and there's so many, so many people and so many little people and they're running around and, and mine are running around and I said to one of my daughters who shall not be named to protect the guilty, I said, uh, do not run, you're going to trip or you're going to hurt somebody or yourself. And she of course, did not listen, and as we were leaving, we're walking out, and uh, she, she goes to see something she hadn't seen yet, and goes running towards it, trips, falls into somebody else, another little kid, he falls, hits his head on this little thing, there is just a massive amount of crying going on, and I look, and she's crying, he's crying, the other mom's there, I, I'm sorry that this happened, and I did, it wasn't really one of those points where I should tell her I told you so. And so instead, I just picked her up and held her, and you could feel the shame, the embarrassment. She knew she was hurt, not bad, but she was hurt. But I think what was more hurt than any sort of bump or uh, scrape was just her pride and the embarrassment that what had just happened to her. 
And when I picked her up, I could feel her arms squeeze so tight around my neck as she buried her face into my shoulder. It is when we stumble that our Father picks us up and we are reminded how much He loves us and how much we need Him. And if He kept us from stumbling every single time, if He always intervened before we could fall, we would never feel the grace and the love of our Father. Imagine that. Imagine every time you were doing something against His will, every time you were doing something you thought you knew better than Him, and He would stop and stop you from stumbling, and he would keep you from the fall. You would never know what it's like to be able to bury your head in him and feel his grace, feel his love. As I got to see my daughter this weekend do that, and I got to feel that in the midst of her embarrassment, all she wanted was to hide in me, like be in that place where she felt safe and hidden in me. And then I read this, and I realized, and I this morning said, thank you, Lord, for letting me stumble from time to time. Without it, I won't know the grace of who you are. And so there's three things here that this, chap- this chapter, Nehemiah 10, teaches us, okay? Three main things. First is this, it's submission to the word of God. You can pray all day long. You can say really neat things in prayer. You can pray in old English and King James style prayers. You can use whom and they and wilt and shall. And it will mean nothing if it doesn't produce fruit in your life. If it doesn't actually change you. If the prayers aren't something that actually produce good outworkings in your life, then what is the point? This is the reason the covenant is made, is they are committing themselves to what they had read and studied for the last uh, month. Then they are committing themselves to the prayer that was brought before the Lord, saying, we will be in this covenant with you, Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 10 through 13 is where they would have gotten it. All of you stand today before the Lord, your God, your leaders and your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, little ones and your wives, that you may enter this covenant with the Lord, your God. So they're seeing this in the law they just read, and they're saying, we've been given back the land. Let's enter again into this covenant with the Lord. So let me ask you this question. Should believers today bind themselves with oaths and covenants as they seek to walk with the Lord and serve him? Should you bind yourself to a covenant or an oath with the Lord this morning that you will serve him? And should you fall, may you be as the torn apart pigeon on the road. No, just in case you're wondering. No, we should not. There are actually no examples in the New Testament of believers uh, making oaths of obedience to the Lord. Why? We'd break it. But even more importantly than that is a new covenant is not about another covenant that we need to make with the Lord. It is about him fulfilling and completing the covenant he made with Abraham. That's the new covenant. Jesus Christ came and said, I will complete this covenant that I made with your father, Abraham. I will complete it. I will pay for sin. I will overcome it. I will defeat it. And so the New Testament is not about us making oaths to the Lord about what we can do. It is about us submitting to the oath that he has given to us. That's the new covenant. To whom much is given, much will be required. It is why there is this understanding that the New Testament does not talk about a tenth or a grain offering or a wood offering. What does Christ require of you? 
everything. All of it. He said, I don't want tenth. I don't want this. I don't want your giving out of this compulsion because of this covenant to keep this promise. I have given you everything. I have laid my son at, at, the, at the footstool so he could overcome it all. That he would overtake sin, that he would overcome sin, that he would rise above everything else, that no other name should rise above his name. And that is the gift that you have been given. And I require from you everything. And where we struggle as a culture in modern church is how do I give God everything but just a small portion of my finances or a small portion of my time each week? But He has everything. He has everything. This is a struggle. This is a struggle for us. And so if we don't succeed as Christians because we make promises to God, we actually succeed as Christians because we believe in the promises of God. How does that play out after the amen? How does it practically play out? Well, here in Nehemiah's time, the second, first is submission to the word. The second is there was a separation as the people of God. You see, the Jewish remnant that was left is surrounded by an idolatrous nation that is doing everything they can to assimilate the Jewish people to say, would you just come and live like us? Would you come and do everything we do? Stop trying to make yourself separate. Stop uh, refusing our merchants from coming in the city walls on the Sabbath and holy days. Our girls are beautiful. Why can't your sons date them? I know this feeling, right? I went to a Christian middle school. There were 13 of us, six boys and seven girls. That's all I had to choose from. The truth is, it was more than I needed because I was very ugly and, the, and it wasn't happening anyway. But still, I get that feeling, right? Like, there's this whole world of women, but here you go, these seven. That's what you get. And the world's like, why? That's not fair. And they're saying, well, I don't know. Our God has asked us to be separate. But here's what God is really asking. God, Israel is God's nation. Israel is his chosen people. And what he's saying is, would you be solely devoted to me? And what institution has God given us in which we can understand what his relationship with Israel is like? What's the name of the institution? Marriage. When you marry your spouse, you are saying to them and the world, I am forsaking all others and I am going to be solely devoted to you. Right? That's what we say. This is what God is saying with Israel. He's saying, you are my people set apart for a purpose that through you my Messiah will come. Do you understand the importance of the Messiah, Israel? Through you, death will be defeated and conquered. Sin will be overcome. You will have the power of my Holy Spirit. You will be able to do miracles and amazing things. But in order to get there, you must be set apart for me. And so he uses this example and he talks primarily here of uh, the two special areas are on marriage and on the Sabbath. Marriage and the Sabbath. Don't intermarry with non-believers is what he's telling them here. And keep the Sabbath holy. Holy in yourselves, in yourselves and holy corporately in your businesses as well. Sabbath is difficult. And I've talked about this a couple times throughout the book of Nehemiah. The Sabbath is difficult to keep. It's difficult to take an entire day off and not 
do yard work or laundry or chores or do the things that you would do on a day off, but to just seek the Lord. Rest. Play games with the kids. Rest your mind. And again, seek the Lord. What would your life be like if you were to actually take a Sabbath and make it a priority? I mean, think about it. What would it be like if as a business owner you were to shut down one day a week purposefully in honor of the Sabbath? Do you believe on a Sabbath day that the Lord would speak to you about identity? Do you believe on a Sabbath day the Lord would refill you, the Lord would give you wisdom for the problems in your marriage and in your work and with your children? Do you believe he would impart wisdom to you? Do you believe if you're sick, a Sabbath day could be a key to getting better? See, here we believe these things. And some of us here we believe these things. But we don't actually do it when the, where the rubber meets the road. Why? Well, because this came up and that came up and this opportunity happened here and I've got to do this here and God will understand this is just part of the tripping and falling and I'll, I'll jump into dad's arms again. And I can tell you as a pastor, the hardest thing for me to get my life around is a consistent Sabbath. I currently have four books sitting on my desk stacked up from three different people about Sabbath rest. I'm like, Lord, are you trying to, would you just tell me what you want me to know, Lord? Stop being so, so mystical. I'm going to get hit in the head by a book that's just like, rest, you idiot. Three, four books, three different people, Sabbath rest. And I, as I read through them and I begin to say, Lord, all right, you've got to help me here. Because I look at a rest day and I just say, I feel, I feel worthless. I feel lame. I feel irresponsible. And the Lord said that's because you are still trying to rest in your own power. You are still trying to figure out what can Nathan do to find rest on this rest day. Stop it. Talk with me. Spend time with me. Ask me to bring this wisdom to you. And then rest. It will take time. But I'm telling you, I seek counsel and talk with more Christians whose struggles and problems and pain in life could be solved by observing a Sabbath every week. I'm one of them. I'm one of them. And so marriage and the Sabbath are the two key points that we see here, being reminded of the people. As I said earlier, they were in uh, captivity, 2 Chronicles 36, 21, in order to give the land rest. Because they did not observe the Sabbath year of rest in their crops for the land, the Lord gave the land rest uh, and had them in captivity for 500 years. He's like, you won't give the land rest? I'll give the land rest. I can just ask, you can ask uh, friends here at this church, you don't take a Sabbath, the Lord will give you a Sabbath. I believe that's why the flu is still around. <laughs> the Lord uses it to his glory that we may find rest in the midst of our very busy lives. The final is this, the final point is this, and it is what I mentioned earlier, it was their support for the house of God, verses 32 through 39. The house of God is used nine times in this section and it's referring to the restored temple. As I said, we no longer have that temple or the ark where God's presence resides, but it resides in us. And so let's look at what they did to support the temple and then 
I want to close with something really amazing that God showed me this week and what he tied together this morning as I was saying, Lord, how does all of this apply today? The first is the temple tax, verse 32 through 33. Annual census of people over 20 would be taxed a half a shekel. That was the tax, and it would go to the temple, and it would help keep the temple going and support the cost of the temple and everything else. In this, you'll notice that they're being charged what? A third of a shekel. So the people are struggling. It is low and tough financial times. And so one of the cool things we learn here is giving is not about this way, that, this thing that puts you in a terrible dire straits. And so they moved it to a third of a shekel because they knew the poverty of the people. They've just come back to Jerusalem, just come out of captivity. And we know that by the time Jesus comes back to the earth, the offering, is the, the temple tax is back up to a half a shekel. And so God is not about putting ourselves in burdens that we aren't expected to carry. It is the tax is meant to say, Lord, my heart is here. It's not over here. And this is the half a shekel. This is my offering to the temple. Okay? The second one is the wood offering. I talked about that to keep the brazen altar constantly burning. And that's from Leviticus 6, 12 through 13. And then we see the first fruits, verses 35 through 37. And this is really, really something the Lord showed me. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your crops. We've talked about it. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, right? Abel brought the first fruits. We don't see that from Cain. What's the first fruits? Is it the tenth? Is the first fruits a tenth? Ten percent? So bring him the first ten percent? It's actually not. There is nowhere in the Old Testament law or the Old Testament period between the prophets and the, and the record books and the poems that say that the first fruits are a tenth. That's sort of something we have put on them. The first fruits were just that, the first fruits. If it was a down year, it's going to be smaller. If it was a prosperous year, it was going to be large. But whatever you were bringing to God was the absolute best that you had, and you brought it before the rest of it all came in, saying, Lord, I am not reliant on my crops for my well-being. I'm reliant on you, and I am bringing my best to you. Now watch this. This is so cool. Because we see that, the fact that there is no place that says the first fruits were a tenth, they were stored for use by the temple servants. Nehemiah 12.44 continues with that. This offering was measured by the blessing God had given them. We look at the tithes, right? Verses 37 through 39. The word tithe means a tenth. And the Jews were to bring a tenth of their produce to the Lord each year. For what? The support of the Levites. And the Levites then took a tenth of that tenth to the priest. And then... The Jews were also to tithe 90%, tithe on the 90% that was left, and take it to temple for the feasts. We're at 20%. And then if you're like, oh boy, I'm getting dizzy. It, just wait. It gets worse. These two tithes were then added, a third tithe, which was received every third year for the poor. Okay. I have a fun game we're going to play. It's called Would You Rather. Would you rather give your life to the Lord and submit to his will or give him 50% of all your money every week? Right? It's terrible. It's a, both of them are terrible. They're really rough. You see, if I give my life to the Lord, then really what I'm doing is I'm saying, all right, God, I'm going to promise to be moral and go to church, which, uh, 
a church on a Sunday. That's my one day to go do fun things. And uh, then I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to try to be a better person. And uh, yeah, 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 I get out of hell and I submit myself to you. But half of my wealth, 30, 40% of what I make every week going to the Lord, you're just crazy, pastor. That's ridiculous. Nobody does that. You're right, nobody does that. Why is that harder to imagine than completely submitting and giving ourselves to the Lord? Completely letting him transform our lives. It's hard to imagine because we view the two as separate things when they're one thing. They're one thing. See, Jesus didn't come saying, give a tenth to me and then give a tenth to your local church and then give a tenth to the poor and then give a tenth to the United Way and then give a tenth here and then uh, your school fundraisers, give a tenth to them. He came and he said, all of it is mine. All of it is mine. Would you give where the need arises? And would you trust that in your giving, I will support you? Would you trust that as you bring your first fruits before me, as you give to your local church, as you give to your schools, as you give to the poor that, you, that I bring across your path, would you give freely to them? Don't keep, a tra- don't keep track of an amount. Don't keep track of a percentage in your life. Would you just give openly as I bring it to you? Test me in this, we learned from Malachi, and see that I will not fill your storehouses. In Malachi, he's physically talking about the storehouses of the temple. He is saying, I will literally overflow the storehouses of the temple. In our lives today, with the promise of the Messiah already come, he is saying, see that I will not literally overflow your life with blessing. I have never seen a generous giver on the streets. I have never seen somebody lose everything and be homeless because they gave their money away to too many people. It's usually the other way around. And so as we look at this and we understand what's going on here, there's three things to remember about giving, whether to a local church or to charities or schools, wherever you're giving. Don't give with a sense of fear, greed, or out of duty, but give with a joyful heart. Don't... Don't give and say, all right, Lord, I gave. Now fill my storehouses, punk. Don't do that. Don't call God a punk. Well, you can, but that's on you. Don't give a tithe failing to love the person or the people you're giving it to. Sometimes we feel that in the, as a, like if you see somebody homeless on the corner of the street, on the corner of the street or going into a store, we feel like I'll give them a five or a 10 or a 20 and then that can be my love. (laughs) The money is a substitution for me loving them. God says, don't do that. Love the person you're giving it to. Love them. Love them as I love them. And then the blessing, my blessing will be on that gift. Winston Churchill said this, we make a living by what we get but we make a life by what we give. Nehemiah and his people put this stuff in writing and then put a sealed covenant on it to say, Lord, after the amen, after the prayer, after the confession, we promise to do this. And here's the sad thing. 
they failed. We know that. Over and over again, they failed. And the reason you're not asked to make a covenant with God, instead receive the covenant he made with you, is because you're going to fall. But like a good father, he's not going to pick you up and say, I told you so. He's going to hold you in his arms and say, this is what it's like to receive grace. Now go, do better. Go, take the love that I've given you and go do better. This week before I headed out of town for a few days, Pastor Blake and I went up and just had this whole route of hospital visits. You know it's been a crazy three weeks. And so we had so many people, and every one of them was in a different hospital, and none of them out here, of course. And so we just started this route all through the East Valley going to hospitals. And the first one we went and visited was Kelly, who's in the hospital uh, again with leukemia. It's the third time it's come back. Um, she's done everything that man knows to do to get rid of it, and it, it goes away and then comes back, and this time it's come back with a vengeance, and had a heart attack last weekend due to her body's organs just shutting down from all the treatment, and she was getting ready to head out to Houston to get some new untested treatment to see if maybe this would work, but because of the heart attack, she's no longer a candidate, and as Blake and I are sitting with her and her husband in the hospital uh, Tuesday, she said, we said, well, what's the next steps, and she said the dreaded words, well, they're looking at setting up timelines for hospice. And if you know anything about leukemia or the medical profession, that's essentially the doctor saying, uh, well, it's over with. It's, we're going to make you comfortable until it's over with. And it's funny, in that moment, I can remember what it, 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 just that feeling of lost and hopelessness. And she said, but don't worry. This is her sick, sitting there in the medical ground. She goes, God is with me. He's given me a sign that he isn't leaving me. And she said, I, her husband went out down to the cafeteria and she was laying there and she just said, Lord, would you give me a sign that you are not going to leave me in this, that you are with me in this? And she said, give me a, send me a rose. And so her husband comes back in and I was thinking he's like got a rose for her and I'm like, oh my gosh, how cool is that? But that's not what happened. Her nurse comes in, the shifts change, and her new nurse comes in, and her new nurse writes her name on the board, and her name is Rose. And she said in that moment, she just knew whatever happened, God is with her. And I'm still believing God's going to heal her. Up until she takes her last breath, I'm going to ask God to give her life and uh, allow her more time on this earth. But there was so much peace in that room there was so much peace being emitted from her that any sort of frustration towards God or misunderstanding or anger that I had, it couldn't stay there. It couldn't be there. She had a peace that passes understanding. And then we went from there to go and visit with Joanne Holloway. And if you know what happened to her, it was on the news, actually, a really terrible rollover accident on the 60, and she is a 78-year-old woman. She looks tiny and frail. I now know she's 10 times stronger than me. Um, and she was in this rollover accident. Her car is upside down. She is hanging upside down in the car, and the EMT pulls the driver out and looks at her and just says, nope, she's gone. Just bring four ambulances for the four other people involved in the accident. Because if you see her, uh, in the hospital. She's got a scar that starts here and goes all the way down around her eye and underneath, and it is all sewn up. And so what had happened is her face had literally peeled back 
and like it was completely exposed. And the EMT would have crawled in there and said, nope, yep, she's gone. And she began to move, and they said, well, get another ambulance here. When I walked into her room, all I can say is that whatever I experienced in Kelly's room, it was like I was walking into the same type of environment. She looks up and says, what are these two handsome men doing here? Now, obviously, she still had her faculties because she could, <laughs> she could acknowledge and see that. And there was such a sweetness about it. She's got a neck brace on, the coolest scar in the world. Um, her head's been shaved, so she looks, I mean, like the Punisher. Um, 78-year-old Punisher. And uh, fractured C2 and C5 vertebrae, but not completely broken through. And I mean, just, just beat up. And all she is exuding is this sweetness. You crush a rose, and all it gives you is a sweet fragrance. And the nurses there are saying that her testimony of who she is, is they just love her to death. Her son is there taking care of her. And I just can't get over the fact, how do you have such incredible peace? I'll invite the band back out, and we'll close with the last one we got to visit on Tuesday. So we go from there, and we're talking in the car, and we're just like, this is unreal. This is unreal seeing people like this. How has God let this happen? Why is he letting it happen? I don't know, but did you feel that in that room? And Blake was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's undeniable. You're in the room, and it's like you're in the presence of God there with these people suffering. And so we go and see Mike DeSico uh, in Phoenix, and he was the last one we were going to see before we head out of town. And if you know, he was, you know, basically the bacterial meningitis was told he wasn't going to wake up. If he did wake up, it would be months and, and he would be in a vegetative state and all this bad stuff. The doctor said, absolutely, this is what happens with this. And this is what the neurologist said his brain was doing. And he's now since woken up and he's talked. He's actually listed his children's names from oldest to youngest using the trach and he's, He's uh, cognitive, and it's amazing. So we go and see him, and his wife is there with him, and she wakes him up, and we make fun of him because that's how we do it. And uh, we, he laughs at us, um, and he recognizes we're there, and we just have this incredible time talking with him and, and hearing from Amber all the miracles that are happening in this guy who, one, wasn't supposed to wake up. Two, if he did wake up, was going to be um, in a vegetative state of some sort and with heavy brain loss. And here he is talking with us, and well, he wasn't talking with us yet, but acknowledging us, using fine motor skills, recognizing we're there. And Amber tells us this story. She says, when they brought him in there, there was a tube in, I believe, his left ear that was, being sh that was showing up on the MRI. And she asked, they asked her, has he ever had tubes in his ears? And she said, no. And so she called his parents, and they said, no, he's never had tubes in his ears, and uh, and they're like, well, there's, there's like a tube in there, and so it doesn't have anything to do with the meningitis, but we're going to get it out because it doesn't need to be there. And so they go into his ear to take out whatever that is, that tube in there, they see in the MRI, and it's not there. But what is there? The cause of the meningitis, which isn't supposed to be there. That's not how meningitis presents, but it's there. And so they treat it, and from that moment on, Amber said the swelling starts going down. And he starts to get better and he starts to try to wake up. And they'd been searching everywhere else and trying every other type of drug on his body, but it wasn't doing anything until they went there. Where'd that tube come from? Why did they think to look there? There was no tube there. Because our Lord God is a good Father.
and he allows us to stumble from time to time because in the midst of the stumble we get to recognize and be reminded of how much he loves us and in that same room for the third time that day Blake and I got to experience what it was like to sit in the presence of the Lord to see so much grace and peace by Mike's wife to hear her say that whenever the doctors come in and try to give a negative pronouncement, she she tells them to leave or give it to her outside, that she's not going to hear it said in, ear, in earshot of Mike. But as much as she appreciates their medical opinion, she's going to believe that the Lord's taking care of his son. Amen. What a weekend to get to see how you pick us up and love us. How you heal. How you do the impossible. Father, would you strengthen this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit right now the faith of those who would be willing to ask. Father, would you give Sabbath rest starting today to those who would be willing to take it. Would you speak identity and truth into the lives of those who feel overwhelmed, broken, and anxious in Jesus' name? God, would we, as your children, honor and uphold your house? This is just a place of worship, God, but it's your place of worship. Jesus name.